Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Battier. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Batier. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I am here today with Dr. Leah Ellis, CEO and co-founder of Sublime Systems. Sublime Systems are the developers of a fossil fuel-free, scalable drop-in replacement for traditional cement in concrete. I know we all recognize the value and need of cement and concrete on a daily basis, seeing as how we use it and it's everywhere, but some of you may be wondering, how much of an impact will something like this have when we talk about decarbonization and reaching net zero? And how does this actually work? So instead of me rambling, let's start asking Dr. Leia these questions. Dr. Leia, thank you for joining me on the show today. If you would, please share with me and the audience your background and a quick introduction to Sublime Systems. Thanks, Joe. I'm delighted to be here. Um, so my background is um, in electrochemistry, so I, I did my PhD in, in Canada with a group of battery scientists. We were developing IP for 3M and then for Tesla. Um, and after my PhD, I wanted to continue working with inventors. I think that's one of the coolest things you can do to science is use it to create value, push push the edges, you know, keep improving. And so I, I got a Canadian government fellowship to go anywhere, work with anyone, and chose to go to MIT to work with yet Professor Yetming Chang at the Department of Material Science there. Um, and he later became my co-founder for Sublime. So it wasn't you know, intending to found a startup, but was definitely intending to, to flex that scientific creativity and to invent things. So it was Yet's idea to apply our expertise in electrochemistry and um, use our batteries science toolbox to apply that to cement making. And the idea was that, um, you know, the energy sector is about 30% of global CO2 emissions. And although it won't be easy, we have much of the technology we need to get to net zero um, for the utility sector through wind, solar, storage, etc. And so how might we use decarbonized energy to then decarbonize the next biggest tranches of emissions, which are industrial emissions from cement, steel, and ammonia. And the largest tranche, I know cement and steel are often neck and neck, but that year cement was the largest CO2 emitter in industry. And so we started from that tagline of electrifying cement, and we've been working backwards from it ever since with a technology that's in a product that's that are both commercially viable. That is very exciting to to hear and think about, and 
electrify cement. We will get to that and try and break that down a little bit more in a, in a bit. But before we get there, I want to start off with a very basic question. What is cement and, and what is concrete and how are the two related? Yeah, it's funny. I also had to Google that when I first started because I think to a layperson, you know, you see um, one of those spinning trucks go down the road and you may call that a cement truck, but that is a concrete truck. So cement is rock glue. Um, and so concrete is about 10% cement and 90% aggregate. So rocks uh, and sand. And it's the cement that gels and hardens and holds all the rocks together to make concrete. So that is, in fact, a, a concrete truck, not a cement truck that's going down the road. A cement truck is just a, a, a truck filled with a loose powder. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So cement, I like that, that phrasing that cement is the glue that goes into concrete, which is essentially an aggregate of rocks. Yeah. So that... Another way you can think about it is uh, the cement is flour and the concrete is a cake. Um, and so it's sort of like that binding agent that can use be used in many recipes to make concrete. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Now, I know we, we just talked about the overall picture of, of those major emitters and then that second step of emissions of steel and cement making and other other CO2 emitters and how cement is was the one year was the highest emitter outside of things like transportation and electricity and heating and cooling. Do you have a hard number on that? Like, I guess, what size is that in terms of global emissions? Is there a number of of million tons of CO2 or anything like that that we can we can look at and think about? Yeah, so it's about, um, if I recall correctly, 2.8 gigatons of CO2 emissions per year, which puts it around 7 to 8% of global CO2 emissions. So if cement were a country, it would be the third largest emitter after China and the U.S. So it is a colossal amount of CO2 emissions. Yeah, so that is that is very significant, I think, is the easiest way to put it. And so cement itself, once you get to that stage, as you put it, it's, it's like a flower. It's like a binding agent. How exactly does something that is this simple little little binding agent, how does that emit CO2? It emits CO2 in the way it's made. So the process for making cement, which is a rock glue, is to take a, an inert mineral um, and then heat it up to the point that it decomposes and breaks those inert bonds. Um, and then it becomes a reactive material that then reacts with water to gel set and harden into an inert rock again. Now, if you're going to do that, the thermal route, there's a lot of heat you have to put into this to essentially um, to break the inert bonds in the rocks. But also if you're making today's Portland cement, which is the most common type of cement today, you have to get to a, 
a point in which the rocks are semi-molten. So you basically need to get like a semi-volcanic state in these long kilns. Now, that's only about half the emissions are uh, from cement are from heating, and the temperatures are extremely hot. It's about 15, 14, 1500 degrees Celsius um, to to decompose and to semi-melt these rocks. So that's a temperature at which you can only get to efficiently through the combustion um, of fossil fuels. But again, that's only half the emissions or about half depending on the kiln. The other half of the emissions uh, are mineral emissions from the limestone. So the mineral that you're breaking down is called calcium carbonate um, or limestone. And that's you know, you're breaking the bonds between the calcium and the CO2. So limestone, calcium carbonate is about 50% by weight CO2. So as you're breaking that down in the kiln, you're losing, um, you know, a tremendous mass of CO2 because each one of these cement kilns um, produces on average a million tons of cement per year. So the stats to add up to 8% of global CO2 emissions um, is partly because cement's manufacturing process is so carbon intensive, as I just described, but also we use more cement than any other material besides water. So cement is the most massively produced and consumed man-made material. And it's when you add up um, all of these tons of cement that you get to such such an enormous number. And I might throw in another number just to, or another factoid, um, I heard recently that um, the mass of man-made things on Earth now exceeds the mass of all living things on Earth, both plants and animals. And that itself is a crazy fact. And then I also heard that half of the mass of man-made materials on Earth is concrete. Um, So you just like think of think of that. <laughs> and then um, you think about all the cement in that concrete and the, the mass of emissions from that and, in a proportional weight. And so that's, that's a way to sort of visualize um, the amount of CO2 that's, that's going into the air from the production of cement. Yeah, that is, it's, it's daunting to think about just how large that is. And, and as probably any of us do. I walk around my neighborhood and there are new houses being built. We all know that first portion of that house is some type of, of foundation, most often using cement to lay a concrete foundation. And so the idea of, of stopping growth or stopping any type of future building is, is, is probably comical to think, oh, we'll just stop building things. So maybe we can stop reducing that that usage. But I want to I I realized that was a rabbit trail. Now I want to go down a different rabbit trail. Thinking well, about I, let these. me let me just address that rabbit trail because I like that one too. <laughs> okay. I mean, it's like you know other parts of of the carbon problem. I mean, we talk about how, you know, the rich or the 1% are responsible for so many much more emissions and it's, you know, air travel and it's, you know, fancy things that you really could just do without if you're living a conscientious life. But that is not the case for cement. And I think that's what makes it such a compelling thing for me to work on because we need cement. Um, 
we need it to build. We need it to have housing. We need it for equitable reasons. Most of the cement that's going to be used in the coming 50 years will be poured in places like India and Africa, where we need it to house a growing and urbanizing population. Um, and so, it, and then it's also necessary, even in a world that's suffering from climate change, and especially in a world that's suf suffering from climate change, because you need to have resilient infrastructure if you want to withstand tornadoes, hurricanes, and floods. So um, we need cement. This is this is not optional, and it's part of the imperative for for coming up with a, a better way to make cement for a post-carbon world. So I like that rabbit hole. <laughs> Feel yeah, strongly about no, that's, it. <laughs> yeah, those are really important parts, and and definitely hitting home that idea of how we are going to need cement and use cement, and how this is this is not something that we can do without. We need this. And so we need to figure out how to decarbonize it. And one of those ideas that you, you see on your website, all of, all of my work colleagues probably talk about because I'm a geologist. So my head's in the ground. Most of the time we talk about CCS a lot and the idea, I, I didn't write it down, but you said gigatons at at the beginning, gigaton scale CO2 emissions. And I would assume that is a, a annual number yeah. gigatons of CO2 being produced from cement. And when we think about CCS, we are, we are in the tens of megatons of what is actually being stored today and probably what is in the pipeline for the next next few years is another tens of megatons, maybe getting into hundreds of megatons. So it, it, there's a, there's a discontinuity there of size in terms of if we wanted to decarbonize cement using CCS, it, I mean, it sounds like it's kind of hard to do that. Yeah. Is that something? Go ahead. Well, yeah, I, I hear you. So CCS is going to be hard. It's not just the capture, which is expensive, but also the what do you do with it once you've captured it? And cement being the biggest industry by mass in the world, it totally dwarfs the need for cement as a chemical or an ingredient um, or, or dry ice or anything. So you're going to have to put it underground. Um, and you know that's complicated. And I don't have to tell you as a geologist, you can't do that everywhere in the world. Um, and you also, you know, that I think the IEA has a really interesting map of uh, places in the world that are good for geological sequestration in one color, and then abundance of renewable energy, be it solar and wind in another color. And it's, it's not everywhere. It's in fact, it's in very few places that you have both good good supply of renewables and good place for storage. And so you get into this weird situation where you're powering your post-combustion carbon capture with more oil or gas, and then you're sort of creating this insatiable loop that just drives up the, the you know, your energy consumption. And so what I feel very strongly about, and I've, I've written about this recently, is that, um, 
you know, we have to focus on carbon avoidance technologies. We have to stop emitting carbon. We can't just um, clean it up after it's emitted because that's, you know, inefficient and it's not going, investment in those technologies are not going to bring us to a post-carbon future. So we have to get innovative and, and redesign our processes to, to just not emit carbon. And I, you know, in the piece that I wrote recently, I liken this to a leaky tap analogy. So this was actually an anecdote from my PhD where two PhD students were working on a piece of equipment that sprung a leak and they turned off the piece of equipment and they started mopping and they were mopping and mopping and mopping, but the pool of water was still spreading on the floor and the leak, the flood got really bad. So they called in the lab manager and they got super uh, roasted by this guy because they hadn't turned off the tap that was continuing to fill this piece of broken equipment with water. And in fact, like the person underneath, you know, is in a university. So the professor who had their office underneath, like all of his stuff and all of his old thesis documents were ruined. But that's my analogy for what may happen to us um, with climate change. So we have CO2 gushing out and you can close the tap or fix the tap, which you may not be able to do that quickly, but that's, you know, the ultimate solution. You can put a bucket underneath the tap and collect it point source, and that's post-combustion CCS. And then, you know, I like to, you know, in a friendly way, perhaps <laughs> take a jab at direct air capture, but I'd say like mopping and mopping it out of the air in a very inefficient and labor-intensive, resource-intensive way without doing step one and two to stem the flow of water is what's going to lead you into a situation where you're just not fixing the problem and you end up creating a, you know, you end up wasting time, you end up um, diverting your resources in a way that just leads to disaster. So, um, I, you know, obviously you have to do all three to fix fix the mess. But the first thing you have to do is, you know, think of a way to get to a world where you're not emitting. Yeah. Yeah. That is, I like that analogy. That is a, it's, it's a fun story. Well, fun for everybody outside <laughs> of the story, but definitely a really good point to think about. You, you, you need to find that root cause and you need to stop that before you can clean up a mess that is going to continue to grow. Yeah. And, and I think that's kind of where you and sublime systems and your co-founder come in with what I'm assuming is a different process that is not as carbon intensive. That's right. So we like to, I mean, we're both battery scientists uh, previously. Or, so um, we like to call this the electric vehicle of cement making because we're replacing hmm. that high temperature um, fossil fueled combustion driven way of making cement with a process at ambient temperature that you know, effectively gets you to the same hardened product. So we're taking inert rocks um, and we're instead of breaking them down thermally with heat, we're breaking them down electrochemically. So digesting them in an electrochemical cycle. So digesting them and re-solidifying them as reactive powders um, and then blending them into a cement that's stoichiometrically very similar to the cement that's made um, in a kiln. And then, you know, turning that into a product that 
can be a form fit function replacement for the cement that's made in kilns. And we've done a tremendous amount of work on the product to measure all of the different properties that it needs to have to behave in cement in all of the different ways that cement is expected to perform, be it um, early strength, set time, slump, you know, water demand, uh, durability in so many different ways, and ultimately, you know, compressive strength um, are all um, acceptable, if if not if not better than um, what we can expect from today's Portland cement. Mm. So, um, yeah, that's it. and so I have to say we avoid cement in our process, and it's not just the heat that we're avoiding. So all, all of the steps in Sublime's process happen at less than 100 degrees Celsius. It is an aqueous process. Um, so it doesn't, doesn't go beyond the boiling point of water. Um, but also we avoid the mineral emissions from limestone. And that's because we're digesting rocks um, through an aqueous process. And that means we don't have to use limestone as a feedstock. So if you're doing it the thermal way, you really need to have that oxide and the CO2. You need that um, gas solid separation to land yourself with that reactive solid. But since we're doing a digestion process, we're almost ambivalent or agnostic to the quality of our feedstock because we can take calcium silicates, for example, just a broad class of inputs that include some industrial wastes and basaltic minerals and uh, of, of many different types. And we can extract calcium and extract the minerals, cementitious minerals from, from these diverse streams um, and get to a very pure source of calcium that can be turned into cement. And so by using non-limestone inputs, we can also avoid um, the mineral emissions from cement. So that's how Sublime's process addresses both halves of the cement problem, both the heating and the mineral emissions. Yeah, that is, it's, it's very exciting and very interesting, even from that high level standpoint and, and discussion just out of curiosity, can you reuse existing concrete then? Uh, we can. And we've, we've done that um, of using demolition debris and extracting the concrete fine or the cement fines um, and turning that into, into fresh cement, I think is, is a pretty exciting application of this to make that come full circle, especially when you think of how such a massive percentage of the man-made materials are, um, you know, our, our concrete. And then, you know, when I look at a city skyline like New York City and I see the massive buildings, I just think to myself, that is equivalent to a big hole in the ground somewhere else out of sight or a, a big mountain that no longer exists. And so I do think about like circularity. And again, most of concrete is, is aggregate and you can crush buildings back down into aggregate and reuse it as aggregate um, in, in most applications. But yeah, that circularity in the built environment is, is really important if we want to minimize our footprint on nature. Yeah, that is really cool to hear about and, and thinking through that circular economy component. And that's one of the, the, one of the things that I like to talk about is that in even today, but potentially more so in five or 10 or 20 years, the next mine 
that's going to be mined is going to be a old abandoned landfill that has been sitting for a while and people are going to realize how much value is there in that, in all of the material that we threw away before, before efficient recycling or before anything and, and realize that is, that is going to be kind of coming to this full circle idea of circular economy. Yes. Especially another digression. (laughs) It is another digression, but especially municipal incinerated waste. Like people throw everything in the garbage from banana peels to old iPhones and vacuum cleaners. And especially where that waste is incinerated, now you've concentrated all these rare earth elements. And those could be um, because, you know, that could be just as an interesting source as a fresh mine. And so I I totally agree with you. Doing circularity on all of our electronic incinerated electronic waste could be really exciting in the future. Yeah. Well, to get back on track. Okay. (laughs) So so your, your system, it removes the, the high temperature kiln, which requires fossil fuel burning. It removes the decomposition of limestone, which removes that CO2 component through that decomposition. But are there, I could I could think of maybe some other areas where there would still be emissions associated with your cement process. One of those off the top of my head is where you're buying the electricity from. So can you I guess is is are there additional inputs and are there ways that you are attempting to reduce those inputs even further? Yeah, totally. So just like, you know, if if we call ourselves the electric vehicle of cement, I mean, the same limitations with electric vehicles, like they're only as green as the grid that you power them from. I guess in our case, um, because cement is carbon intensive for those two reasons, both the energy and um, the, the, the limestone emissions, if you, if you were, if you ran our process with a, a, the U.S. average grid, you'd still be better off using our process than the conventional thermal way because you're avoiding those mineral emissions as well. But you're right; we can we can only be the the best version of ourselves when we use a fully decarbonized grid. And so, we have um, a fantastic head of project development, um, Becky Gallagher, who's working on. Um, you know, working on the geology. So looking at, you know, the confluence of where are, are there the right minerals and the right quantities, where can we get um, a lot of renewable energy at the right price and how to, how close is that to market? So we can also minimize our transportation costs. So because cement is so heavy and so cheap, minimizing your transportation costs also um, not only have a big impact on your economics, but also, you know, a rather big impact on your, um, you know, your embodied CO2 as well. So we we just did a life cycle assessment that went into what's called an environmental product declaration. Uh, so we, we did this modeling with uh, a company called Climate Earth, who does this for the cement industry. And we found that for our projected um, full-scale plant, we could get to 90% fewer emissions than today's Portland cement. And those were assuming we use renewable electricity um, from hydro Um, and the remaining 10% emissions that we, we do not address through a process are the transportation emissions um, from uh, 
transporting the raw materials and the mining and, and the mining that goes into it. So, but I do believe there is a path to get, um, you know, tr- the transportation industry decarbonized as well. That's just outside the scope of our company for now. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, that that is exciting. And, and I think that dovetails into a recent announcement that that your company made talking about the the first commercial scale manufacturing facility. Can you tell us a little bit about that and and your what went into making that decision and and choosing that location? And I'm going to let you say cuz I I know I'll mispronounce that town in in Massachusetts, the paper capital. Yeah. And I'm going to let you say it. <laughs> it's Holyoke. Um, you know, some people say Holyoke, but it is Holyoke, Massachusetts. Um, and so, yeah, we recently announced that we plan to build our first commercial plant there. Um, and that came at the end of about 18 months of of focused effort on finding a place where we can site this first commercial plant. And we looked through it. Uh, we looked at this through a number of lenses that I mentioned before. Most of all, you know, how do we put our first commercial plant close to our headquarters? So we're based out of uh, Somerville, Massachusetts, um, close to MIT. That's where, um, you know, most of most of our team works. Um, and so we were looking at a three-hour radius even by plane. So it encompassed New England and parts of Canada. And then we filtered down by where, you know, we ran a competitive process, um, which states and provinces offer the best incentives um, for a, a clean technology coming to their community. Um, and then, you know, Holyoke had so much that we liked, um, you know, including the hydroelectricity dam. So Holyoke, um, AKA Paper City, you know, the site that we got has been zoned industrial for over about 200 years. So um, that expedited our process as well to find a place that's already zoned industrial um, that's that's ready to go. And so Holyoke's been the site of manufacturing for a very long time. And because of that, um, it has all of the infrastructure that we need. So it has easy access to rail. It has this hydroelectric dam. Um, it has a ready and willing workforce. Um, and I think it's just perfect. And, and I think there's a lot of poetic justice in us um, citing in Holyoke as well, because this community has been left behind by the industries that have used this location over the past dec- decades and generations. So, you know, this paper mill that was there before, um, left environmental damage that has then since, you know, had to be cleaned up. And, you know, Holyoke um, has some of the highest rates of asthma uh, as a result of the air pollution. And, you know, being able to come as a company that's founded um, with the values of being, um, you know, a good steward of the environment and, and being able to come to this community that has has the scars of old manufacturing. And, and it's because of the old manufacturing nature of this town that makes it a good candidate to be the site for new manufacturing. But we're coming with the intention explicitly right at the beginning of being good stewards, not only of the land, but also of the community as well. I really like that. And I, I know we could do a whole podcast on just the, the social implications and the, and the social side of, of this first 
commercial facility and Holyoke and, and what, what this partnership is going to look like, but I'm going to, I'll save that for another time. I just think it's, it's very exciting, very cool to hear that, to hear the manufacturer manufacturing that's coming, basically giving a second life or regenerative life to this, this location and exciting to hear how and why that location was chosen even even from a business perspective how that ends up working and being an attractive business proposal so when when you get to full operations how much is that plant specifically going to be producing in terms of i guess tons of cement per year and and I'll I'll let you, go ahead. Yeah, that plant is sized to produce up to thirty thousand tons of cement per year. And how does that compare to that larger global number, or even even just from a U.S. perspective? Just where does that fit in? Yeah, so thirty thousand tons of cement per year. Um, while that may be a lot, and for most companies that would be, you know, a, a very large plant of, of many other commodity materials, but this is a very small cement plant. So it is just large enough to supply one ready mix concrete plant. So the, the people that, you know, batch out concrete in these spinning trucks, enough to supply one of those um, for a full year. Um, to put that in context, the average U.S. cement plant is about a million tons per year capacity, so 30 times larger than the plant that we are operating. Um, and this U.S. has about 100 of those million ton per year cement plants. So this is small, but it's a very important first step for us to get to that million ton per year capacity. Of course, that would be a tremendous capital investment. And, you know, presently we were running a pilot plant that can produce up to 250 tons a year. So going from 250 tons a year to a million tons a year is a very large step. (laughs) So building this mid-size plant, um, it's the biggest jump from pilot that we can do comfortably um, that fully de-risks that million ton per year plant. So once we've done this minimum industrial scale plant, it may not be sized to have great economies of scale, um, but we can validate the economics of that plant because we're using the same equipment. We're doing everything in the same way so that we can scale it up and be very confident that this is um, an effective effective way to make cement um, that's cost effective as well as being technically effective. Yeah, that that makes complete sense going from pilot to demonstration and then to full scale, commercially average size, mature technology. What would it take? So this is this is relatively small where we're at today. What would it take to get to the stage where where Sublime Systems, Sublime Cement, and and subsidiaries or 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 licensees were supplying all of the worldwide cement? What are I, I guess that it's a it's a roundabout way of asking what kind of bottlenecks are there into the scaling? What kind of 
technology constraints? What what are some of those big factors that that are still required to really decarbonize cement? Oof. Well, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of cement to decarbonize and it's it's going to take a lot of time to get everybody all over the world bought into new technology, not just Sublime's technology, but there are many levers that we can start pulling now in which the industry is is pulling now to bring those emissions down. So presently, the, the, the means today's cement manufacturers have to decarbonize include using alternative fuels as much as they can, so burning tires and unrecyclable plastics and biomass, um, supplementing the cement with lower carbon uh, natural materials that perhaps don't have the performance of, of, of Portland cement, but um, have, you know, you, you don't need high performance cement in every application. It's like not everything is a skyscraper. You can make your sidewalks and your basement out of blended cements that use less material that's been kiln fired. So that's what the industry is doing now. And we have to do that. But none of these existing technologies can get us to zero. Um, and so, you know, I think those are being adopted as quickly as possible. We're going to try scaling up Sublime as quickly as possible. And once this plant in Holyoke is validated, which uh, could be as soon as three years from now, uh, we would have the engineering plans to then go build these million ton per year plants using Sublime's technology. And my hope and my dream is to have Sublime's technology be deployed um, not only in places like Europe that have, you know, progressive um, carbon incentives, but also in places like India and Africa, because they're going to be pouring the most cement. They're going to go through a period of dirty growth. And if we move quickly to develop new technology here in the U.S., we can make sure that these developing countries are building cement plants with Sublime's technology because otherwise they're going to build Portland cement plants that are meant to last 50 to 100 years. And then you're going to have 50 to 100 years of a million tons per year CO2 emissions. And that's going to affect everybody because CO2 has no borders. So it's my goal to have a swift and massive impact on global CO2 emissions and to measure that impact in the amount of cement that Sublime is able to produce and sell through our technology. But it's a race against time. And it's a race against technologies like post-combustion carbon capture that may not be um, as effective in the long run. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that's a, it's a really good point to, to think about the, the fact that we need to scale, we need to scale fast and, and while while I always say getting to net zero is going to be it's going to be a solution through a thousand stitches, it's going to require a lot of different inputs. It's going to be an all of the above solution, but absolutely there are some things that just need to be done versus some things that are that are unique niche solutions that probably don't need to be everywhere. And so I, I really like your answer and I really like the, the, the inspirational input of let's go get it done. Let's get this, this 
solution out there and spread worldwide. And so for all of the listeners, I hope I hope this wasn't something that 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 is a pessimistic point or a oh well what's the point in trying, but I hope instead it is a call to action to hear and find and see current gaps and see those as opportunities to fill gaps and to keep pushing projects forward. Yeah, totally. We've got to keep pushing it. And to your point about net zero, and then also to go back to our leaky water analogy, you know, it's important to get to net zero by 2050. But then there it's, you know, we, we have this term at Sublime of true zero, which is not net zero, which in you know, brings to mind some addition and subtraction through uh, carbon capture. But to get truly to a post-carbon world um, where we can continue to grow and to build um, without any, you know, without any guilt. And so that is that is where we want to go is to net zero and beyond to true zero through through new technology. Yeah. Well, with that thought, I want to transition into my final questions. These are the questions that I ask all of my guests. The first question being, what is a favorite book of yours that you would recommend? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. And, and as I was reviewing the prep notes, this one I think is probably the hardest. So I, I do like to read. Um, I read a book a month with with some friends. I have a book club that you know I met and <laughs> During the pandemic, um, we kept each other going by new books. I, it's hard to choose, but a book that I have reread over the years is a book called Destiny Disrupted by Tamim Ansari. It's not about clean tech, but it is. Um, you know, Tamim Ansari is an Afghani American historian, and he realized that you know, in the West. Um, the history of the Islamic world is often a footnote. Um, and, you know, the you know the way history is taught is through Greece and Rome and the Middle Ages, etc., the Renaissance. And you forget that there's this huge, prosperous, innovative society that just isn't, you know, it isn't white. And so perhaps it's overlooked, but it's so important, especially in light of current events that are, you know, disturbing and are raging at the moment. And so um, this book is about the you know, rise and fall of civilization, basically from that Islamic eyes, like how people are taught history um, in that light. And it's it's fascinating to hear the rise and fall of different empires and the effect Genghis Khan had when he ripped through the Islamic world and how the Sunnis and the Shias have been fighting and how religion influenced all that and what that means um, for for current events. I it's a gripping story. It's um it's not just historical, it's a thriller like Game of Thrones style. Um so I would recommend that. I've I've had to reread it just because it's so important and it's also, you know, fun. As much as very, you know, scary stories can be fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very interesting. I will have to add that one to the list. Now the next questions, we've been talking around it, but now directly, how do we get to net zero? And then as as you are pushing for, how do we get to net zero and beyond? Yeah, I guess a summary of what we said is we get to net zero by, by you know, doing everything we can. So just like the leak, you got to put in the buckets to collect 
emissions from point source. That is the cheapest and fastest thing that you can do in an emergency to stem the flow of CO2. So I absolutely think that the onus on cleaning up should be pinned to the source of emissions. And I think, um, you know, technology is there to do that. And yes, we will have to store and sequester the carbon, but, you know, the oil and gas industry is very good at digging holes and, and and putting stuff underground. So, you know, we have, you know, the onus should be on them to capture their own emissions. And in the meantime, we should be working on um, on carbon avoidance technologies, um, which I acronym the CAT as, as CATS. We should be working on, on these technologies to bring us beyond net zero uh, to true zero. I, I laugh because the acronym CATS and everybody's view of CATS, I'm sure, can be played into a meme in some way. But I'm not going to try and do that mental <laughs> gymnastics right now. So now you actually get to ask me a question. Um, I would love to know the story behind the bow tie. <laughs> the story behind the bow tie. That... um yeah. So the story behind the bow tie, this one specifically is from a friend. It's a, it's a clip on, so it comes on and off. And and now, cause I can't, I know that's not perfect, but, but I started wearing bow ties because I, I've always liked them, but I have always been intimidated. I, I was intimidated by bow ties for for the longest time i was always like i like them i can't pull them off i don't know how to tie them can't do it and this happened maybe it was about 10 years ago my my at the time girlfriend now wife she bought me three or four for christmas even though i told her i really like bow ties i just i don't know how to tie them and i i can't pull them off and, but she got them for me anyway, almost as like a, well, no, you're going to do it because you like them. So, so here's the challenge. And so I got them and I had to wear one for like a new year's party or something. And it was like, okay, here's your bow ties. Go learn how to tie them. You have a week. And ever since then, the only time I have worn a normal tie was to my sister's wedding because I like I've become a bow tie person and I, I really like them. And if anybody says they are not practical, especially for, for anybody out there who wears regular bow ties or regular ties, I just want to ask how many times have you gotten salad dressing or soup or, or some type of gravy or steak sauce on your tie and then subsequently thrown out that tie? Mm. For me, I can raise my hand and say I have never done that to a bow tie. Like so, a spill of a laundry avoidance technology right there. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> okay, follow-up well, question. What is your favorite yep. bow tie? Favorite it sounds like you have more tie. than one. It sounds like you may have a couple. <laughs> I I have quite a few. My Gosh, I don't know what my favorite one is because I now they are a, a thing that I always keep my eyes open for. So I've got bow ties from 
from vacations, vintage bow ties from Italy that I got mm. while I was on vacation. I've got bow ties like this that have been been given to me by colleagues and and friends and fans in the industry and and then I've got ones that I've been given for being a groomsman. So I think almost every tie except for a handful of them have some type of personal story to them. So it's something that none of those are, are, are super, super detailed. I mean, I've got, I've got the one I, I wore to my wedding. So that one has a special story. I, I didn't have one on when my son was born. Otherwise I'm sure that one would have a special story. So nothing that like, no major one that jumps out and says, Hey, this is, this is the most important tie. I think they all have a special story. Interesting. It's like every, every cat is unique. And I guess every, every bow tie is unique and has its own story. Yes. Yep. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, Dr. Leia, thank you for joining us on the show today. Before we sign off, is there anything else you'd like to say? Um, no, it's a, been a pleasure i've i you know thanks for having me to talk about my favorite subject which is cement which i think uh, most people don't see um because it's it's sort of gray and silent and for for a long time i think overlooked and so thank you for having me here to to talk about my favorite subject and i, I hope that your listeners um start to see the world through new eyes when they're walking down the street Absolutely. I like that. Well, thank you again for joining us. And thank you everyone for joining us on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, share it with a friend and leave a review telling me what you're enjoying most or what you would like to hear more of. If you want more news and energy related stories, we have all sorts of energy related podcasts on OGGN. You can find them by connecting with us on LinkedIn or visiting the website. Finally, if you have any questions, comments, corrections, or have a story that you would like to share, send me an email. That email address is joe.batir at OGGN.com. If you don't use email, find me on LinkedIn. And until next time, remember to keep it low carbon and high energy. Join us again next week for another low carbon, high energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.